today's episode is a part of Minority Money Podcast, We Need to Talk series. This series gives your host an opportunity to pivot away from some of our usual topics to talk about more current events. The We Need to Talk series will give us an opportunity to discuss issues with other experts and talk about solutions to these issues. I hope you enjoy this installment of the new series. As always, please let us know what you think of this new segment of the show by either writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sending us an email. I present to you the We Need to Talk series. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And today we're going to jump back into our We Need to Talk series because there were some things that I figured we needed to talk about. And today we're going to be talking about race and finance with the one and only Rachel Robiscotti. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. And I happen to have a very Italian last name. So I would love to take this opportunity to just clarify that my last name is Rachel Robichotti. I hardly ever get an opportunity to do this in a recorded environment. So thank you. Yes, the C is silent. But no one knows that unless I tell them. You know, and I usually ask before <laughs> I say someone's name, but I was just dead. I was like, I know I said it right. Like, I was like almost taking pride. In Those are all your Italian classes. Yes. Yeah, I was like, yes. <laughs> so pronounce your last name one more time for everyone, please. Robichotti. Robichotti. Yes, Rachel Robichotti. I like that. Actually, yeah. I think your name is fun to say. But we brought you on today because of the work you're doing in the financial services industry, period. You're just doing some tremendous work. But we wanted to be able to showcase and talk a little bit about the blog that you had, that you've been running. And some of the other stuff you're doing too. But before we get into that, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Give them a little background about who you are, what you do, and we'll jump into the other parts of what we want to talk about. Sure thing. And just cut me off if I go too long, because (laughs) I have been in the industry 21 years now. So I started my financial firm when I was 25. I already had five years in the industry. That doesn't make sense. It's because I graduated when I was 15 and went to college. And I started basically a financial advisory firm. And I was working with individuals, families, financial advising, investment management, definitely working primarily with women, LGBTQ folks, people of color, kind of making change one at a time, helping folks really get a good understanding of their money and where they had excess money, like really supporting them, giving away what was extra. And one of the things our clients just were naturally interested in was socially responsible investing. And we did a lot of that work until at the end of the Great Recession, things started to change quite a bit. And SRI evolved into ESG, which Mm -hmm. SRI goes from socially responsible investing to something called environmental, social and governance standards for investing. So it basically went more mainstream and we and our clients felt like it had been watered down. So we created a solution for our clients, but apparently because our solution was so deeply rooted in what social justice organizations and those communities we actually intended to impact thought was important, it really took off. That impact strategy is formerly called RISE, which stands for Return on Investment and Social Equity. So you may have seen some of the work we did there. We just recently 
spun that off into an entirely separate business, Adesina Social Capital, which is also a registered investment advisor, but primarily working on asset management. So I'm the founder and CEO. And what's the name of that company? Adesina Social Adesina. Capital. Adesina Social Capital. Now, I did see that in link to the blog series with the race and finance. So one of the things like you said, you work with the LBGTQ community. And one of the things you said that you're a black queer woman who founded their firm at 25. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think there's been some, not confusion, but there's been talk about whether or not to use the term queer. And I know this wasn't exactly what we were going to talk about, but I think it was a great time to bring it up. So talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I can talk about my personal reasons for yeah, yeah, your queer. Pers- from your perspective, not, yeah. Yeah, so queer to me feels like the most inclusive term that can be used because lesbian and gay have traditionally met women who are attracted to in a relationship with women or men that are in same-sex relationships. Bisexual has had a variety of meanings and actually hasn't been very universally accepted within the larger LGBTQ community itself. Queer is definitely a term that is more the millennial late Gen Xers. We tend to use that term more so because it doesn't force us into any one of those particular identities. It actually acknowledges us as whole human beings. Because while my sexual orientation is a big and important part of who I am, and it's different from the norm, it doesn't necessarily need to be neatly placed into a particularly prescribed box. I went by lesbian for many years and entering a relationship with a man, biggest surprise of my life. It also just felt like it was appropriate to start using queer and it felt right. I mean, I think it opens up an interesting conversation for me, at least. And the reason being is because my mom was, well, we would call her a lesbian, but she was my mom. So obviously at some point in time, she wasn't, or I mean, you know, no, it's just one of those things that I don't know what I would refer to. I mean, I guess if she was here now, because my mom did pass away, then I guess she would be Sorry. maybe associated with queer opposed to being just lesbian. But it's just one of those things and just want to be respectful of people that want to be identified as such. So that's the whole reason why I asked. Absolutely. And within the larger community, just so you know, like some people that go by lesbian or gay are very insistent that that they specifically want to go by that. Some people really don't care. So I think it's just really about acknowledging where people feel like it makes sense. Right. And I'm all for that. But I did just want to touch on it. I just thought, you know, I was like, you put it on there. I was like, let's bring it up. Let's talk about it. And then I always think in terms looking through the lens of me looking at my mom and how she would have been identified and it would have been a great conversation if we could have had it still but we can't so but anyhow with that being said let's jump right into this race and finance blog why why did you do that why was it important so after george floyd's murder very soon there were several things that happened for us in particular One of which is that at our firm, we were hearing lots of people ask, you know, what can we do? And we had been working on racial justice for many years and had a strategy that covered multiple different categories. And it kind of felt like finance had some unsure footing and wasn't quite finding its way or thought it didn't apply to finance. And really, we put race and finance out as an educational series so that 
people had a better sense of why this not only pertained to finance, but is actually central to the conversation. Yeah. So started with some history of the roots of finance and then just talking about what it means to make Black Lives Matter in finance because currently in financial services, I think as we're building businesses, we tend to want to please folks and talking about things that are politically or culturally charged are one of the ways that people, right? And, you know, feeling really great about expanding their network and their potential clients. And yet not talking about it has resulted in the financial industry that we have right now, which is kind of out of step with where the country is and the culture is. So basically it's time that we started talking about race and finance. Absolutely. That's why we put it out there. And I think it was timely. It's well-written. You know, it's their power pack, not very long, but very informative. And so one of the things that you talked about is talking about the history of the industry, like the history of the stock market and some things that you talked about with the slave trade in New York and how it all started. So touch on that a little bit, because I think that's important because as we're trying to change the industry, I think it's important for us to know where it started at. And, you know, not only for advisors, but for consumers as well, because I think that sometimes people think, oh, here goes black people again, just complaining. And I'm like, no, no, no. This has been going on for a while. This has been going on for a long time. It's been going on for a bit. For, yeah, for you know, well over 400 years. So, you know, one of the most interesting things that I think folks who say, what does this have to do with finance, that they don't know is that Wall Street, which is the icon of the financial industry, that the very first slave market or the very first slave market in New York was in Wall Street and it was built by slaves and slaves were traded on it. The first bond market was based on the idea of mortgages. And when we think about mortgages, it's like lending against collateral. Well, that first collateral wasn't a home. It was human bodies of slaves. And so most people don't really understand how the very underpinnings of our entire industry are rooted in the slave trade. And that's important because those are lives and futures that were taken without consent and, you know, without any remuneration for that. So basically, if you think of it purely in financial terms, those are assets that were stolen and accrued to the people who were enslaving or buying and selling or creating markets, right, for that type of behavior. And we know that the way money works is that wealth is passed down generation from generation. Well, it becomes very obvious then why so many Black communities are impoverished and why the wealth inside of Black communities is so low. You know, we don't have that intergenerational wealth to pass down. What we often end up having if we make it and do well financially is intergenerational debt Mm -hmm. and expenses. Exactly. And it makes sense. You know, our first arrival here was about theft, you know, theft of the assets that we had, our own labor and our own lives. I mean, when you think about that, like we talk about the market, right? And we think that, you know, to know that slaves built the actual market where they were traded at Mm -hmm. and they were treated as property, not as human life. And to think here we are all these years later, still trying to fight the good fight and saying black lives still matter because they apparently didn't matter then. Yeah, they didn't matter then. So now we're talking about them that, as they should matter now, but we still have to remind people that they matter. Mm-hmm. It's like, to me, I think about it 
this is just in finance that we're talking about now, but it's just, you know, the devaluation of black life has always been a subject of something in the culture of America. Even Ben Franklin tried to say that black people were biologically different from other races and trying once again to devalue our life. So, so true. Yeah. it's funny that when you say things like Black Lives Matter, it does incite some type of emotional response from people black and that are not black. So hey, this is such a good series and it's such a good thing. And what were some of the takeaways that you had as you were doing the research for this and writing it? So in our investment strategy at Addisina, we focus pretty in our investment strategies, I should say we have a public equities and a fixed income. We focus on racial justice we have for years. And some of the most important work that we've done is that basic educational piece, because I think that the biggest impediment to people doing something about race and about Black Lives Matter in financial services is this idea that it doesn't pertain to finance. And so helping folks actually just see that this is history. This is how things were set up. And so it's like a conveyor belt. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't stand up and walk in the other direction, history sets certain things in motion that continue like a conveyor belt. And so what I feel like we were doing is really setting the stage to help folks realize they're on a conveyor belt, stand up, right? And start walking in the opposite direction because just sitting there is moving things along the way they've always been. Yeah, you're so right. And the thing that like really kind of intrigued me when I was looking at everything that you were doing was how someone could unknowingly be investing money and aiding in the continued racial injustice by some of the companies. Because we talked a little bit about the ESG and then, you know, what you're doing at the investment firm that you have, but like supporting companies that are continuing, you know, like, let's just talk about prisons. Mm -hmm. To support that, and we understand the prison system and we understand, you know, Black people are 13% of the population and we understand, you know, we make up a large portion of the prison population. And being an investor, you could be supporting that very prison that's taking mostly Black men off the street and putting them in jail and removing their rights and stuff like that. So talk a little bit about that. I know it's not on the list, but I know that you can probably speak to that. We don't need lists. We can just roll with it. (laughs) So it's really actually a little bit of a complicated issue because most of us who do our homework come to understand that stock picking and market timing aren't really the way to go when you're investing money for a client. That really, you know, most of us realize you can't really beat the index and more of what's considered a passive approach, though I don't love that language but more of a passive approach, kind of like a broadly diversified portfolio is better for most people. So that's all good. I'm completely in where that's concerned. That's my approach. The trouble is that they all are based on an index or a list. And I like to tell folks maybe who are just coming into finance that an index is supposed to be like a sampling that represents how a total segment of the market is doing. So it's kind of like if you're cooking a soup, taking a spoon of that, tasting it to see if the broth is any good. So it's very similar, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is 30 companies that are supposed to be a sampling of how U.S. companies are doing. Different companies put out these indexes. They publish them and they're just really collections of the stock of companies. 
So the Dow Jones is one, the S&P 500 is another. So here's the trouble. These, usually it's a committee of folks who's deciding what's on an index. And the index is supposed to be like agnostic in a certain way, meaning like they aren't stock picking, they aren't market timing. They really are trying to just get a representative sample. And, but inside of many index funds, two large publicly traded companies are private prison companies. So these are companies that specifically profit from incarcerating folks and their existence creates, they have contracts with municipalities um, and states actually, that create perverse incentives to keep them full, the contracts that they have with these government entities. And so ultimately, if your index, right, that is if your index includes these private prison companies, and then you use a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund to do nice, low cost, passive investing that isn't stock picking or market timing, it's just getting a sampling of the market. Well, if the private prison companies are in that sampling, you're giving them a boost, like money is going to those. So there's this whole set of research that came out of the London School Economics that was specifically about how being on a benchmark adds a subsidy, meaning it just, your stock is worth more if you're on a major benchmark. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking deeply at like, do we actually want to invest? Meaning when we invest, we send a signal, make more of this. Here's more money to make more of this. Do we actually want to invest in private prison companies? And we may not want to, but if we're trying to follow good investing rules, like passive investing, index investing, and those are based on indexes that include private prisons, why are we working against our own values? So that's a question that we brought up and really examined. And it's one of the reasons why we've created an index that specifically does not include those types of companies. Not only the private prisons, but their major financiers and suppliers are also excluded because those are central to the private prisons continuing to stay in business. And that's something that I didn't really think about until, you know, I'd watch some documentaries on stuff like this and read some different articles and, and looked into it. But when you think about the companies that supply things to the prison, and if they're in your index and you're like unknowingly, you are actually continuing the support of the oppression in that particular facility with prisons and knowing that it's largely filled with minorities, wouldn't you want to change the way you do your investing? Like You would, but that would require not using these wonderful passive investments, right? That are based on indexes. And that's really because we haven't had an index that reflected social justice values, which is what we are creating. And we'll be happy to see up on everyone's Bloomberg terminals come the 30th of this month. So as of where it's the 23rd and we're recording this, so just in seven days, it'll be up on Bloomberg terminals. Nice. And editing, this will be edited. I know. So I want to just check in. Do you not want me to say it will be up? Do you want me to say it's just been already created? You're fine. You're fine. That's fine. Okay. You're fine. So that's just crazy. Thinking about that, like how to make a change in, in impacting communities, like how do you make that change? Someone's listening to this, they're like, okay, you know, now what do I do? Like, how do I make a change? Well, I just want to start by saying that one of the ways that you can make a change in impacted communities is investing directly in the businesses that are in those impacted communities that share your values. Mm -hmm. And we really support that. We think of that as more regenerative investing. But for people who have 
smaller amounts of money or need more availability of their money, more liquidity, and therefore need to be kind of invested in the stock market, you want to at the very least not be making the problem worse. And the best place to go to figure out what publicly traded companies are working for or against social justice goals is actually to go to the social justice movements themselves and have them tell you, like, how would you deal with the issue of racial justice? You know, were you an investor? And actually listen. You know, the first conversation that we had with the Poor People's Campaign with the Reverend Dr. Barber about how we could support their work, which is at the intersection of economic racial and climate justice. That first conversation took four hours. Most investors aren't necessarily interested in spending the time that it takes to really translate what we do into a language that makes sense to people who do an entirely different sort of work and really to take the time to understand what they say we should be focusing on. Sometimes they tell us to focus on things for which there is no data. Mm -hmm. That can be difficult. So the People's Campaign said, focus on livable wages. You know, we need you to focus on economic justice. That's the number one issue. And we connected with One Fair Wage, which is another campaign partner that also works with the Poor People's Campaign. And they really identified that when we're looking at livable wages, we want to have impact for those right who are most negatively impacted by capital markets. These are the people that are paid a sub-minimum wage. If you've never heard of a sub-minimum wage, it's the $2.13 an hour that primarily tipped workers can be paid and publicly traded companies pay them that amount and legally get away with it. Now, that comes out about $5,000 a year for full-time work. Can you imagine what happens to your unemployment benefits? Sometimes you don't even make enough money to qualify for them. And if you have to rely on tips to make any more than that, then you might be incentivized to go to work when you're not feeling so well. And we know how bad that can be during a pandemic. So it took a long time just to understand that what we should be focusing on is livable wages and starting with eliminating the poverty wage that's created by publicly traded companies, these large companies paying sub-minimum wages. So that type of work, it's just a lot of work, honestly. Mm. It's just a lot of work. And so I think a lot of folks aren't necessarily interested in doing it and really love the idea of an index that's deeply connected to social justice movements because they're like, great, I don't have to know what the right issues are. You are talking to them. That's wonderful. We're going to follow their lead. It's just crazy because I think like what you're saying, talking about the sub-minimum wage and not being able to make enough money, especially not even having wages to qualify for unemployment and Mm -hmm. thinking about the communities that have large groups of people working in those types Mm -hmm. of jobs. It's predominantly communities of color. It is. This issue is at that intersection of economic, racial, and gender justice. It's mostly women, mostly people of color, primarily Black people, Mm -hmm. right? And they're getting paid low wages. So our work is to not only include in our index a screen that helps us know which companies are paying sub-minimum wages and ensure that they are excluded from the portfolio and they aren't benefiting from being on that index. But it's beyond that. This also gives that community, like One Fair Wage and those working to end the sub-minimum wage, a tool to say, look, investors care about this, right? Soon we'll be sending out an investor letter that has institutional investors sign on when we did something very similar to end forced arbitration for sexual harassment in public companies. We had $54 billion of institutional investors sign on an agreement 
when they can take a letter like that to the company, it adds additional rationale for why it makes sense to end that practice. This is like such a big deal, a big issue that people aren't talking about. Like you're not hearing, you know, you get a lot of companies that are coming out and saying, yeah, we're going to write a check. Yeah, we're going to do this. Yeah, we're going to do that. But no one's talking about the underlying issue. It's always a couple layers above the underlying issue that they try to make changes. And those issues are the changes that they make never make their way down to the people that need the changes the most. Exactly. That is undeniably, we got so many statements about racial equity and racial justice, which I'm happy to see large publicly traded companies making. I'm so thrilled. Not something they've necessarily been as willing to do in mass in the past. And what matters even more so is at least pay the legally mandated minimum wage, at least pay the minimum wage. End forced arbitration for sexual harassment claims. That again, primarily impacts women, African-Americans, low-wage workers. Mm -hmm. So we actually want to do the most good for the largest number of impacted people. And when we connect deeply with social justice movements, they give us that information. Like these are the issues to focus on. Now, of course, we look at other things as well. Like we aren't investing in tobacco companies. Like we have a whole set Mm -hmm. of criteria that are part of the social justice index because we don't want to be investing in companies that are, you know, giving people cancer, for example. But when we go out and do campaigns and when we make public the companies that we're excluding from our portfolio, that's when we're really participating and organizing other investors to join us in making this large-scale systemic change for the people who are most impacted right? Like the sub-minimum wage workers, like the workers who've been the victim of serial sexual harassment and silenced by an unfair arbitration process. It's so crazy. Like even I've seen this, this just happened a couple of weeks ago with the CEO of McDonald's where he had a relationship with someone and then they try to go through arbitration. So the woman can't, you know, go after. It's just that it's funny how, not funny in a way of like laughing matter, but it's just funny to me how the people that made the rules are the ones that get to like, we know this is an issue. And companies said, okay, we know this is an issue where we're sexually harassing women, people in the workplace. So we're going to say that you can't take us to court. We need to make it arbitration. Who approved that? Like who said that was okay? That's the thing that. Yeah. So the history is that they started having people sign contracts that said they would go to arbitration once they started employment. Mm-hmm. The reason why companies did that is because there was actually a long time ago, a big push to use arbitration instead of courts because it's less expensive and could actually be better. The idea is that it would be better for workers because it was less expensive. The unfortunate reality is that when a company uses the same arbitration firm and the same arbitrator again and again and again, they develop a relationship and there is an unchecked bias that that particular arbitration firm is going to rule in favor of the company that pays them, right, very regularly. And usually those arbitration processes come with non-disclosure agreements, meaning it's completely private. It's not a public thing that you can take to court, can't talk about it in the workplace. So when the company wins, right, and they win at a surprisingly high percentage of the time, The company's off the hook, which lets the perpetrator off the hook, and they're able to do it again because nobody even knows that it was an issue. It had to all be private and in arbitration. So these are the kinds of things. I think it was an unintended consequence of bringing arbitration. But also companies were looking at reducing their own costs for going to court when employees had claims. But I think it really ended up 
turning into something that enabled a really unjust practice to continue and created like a culture in which serial sexual harassment was allowed. I can't say the same for the subminimum wage. I think the idea is that if you make tips that you'll make above the minimum wage, but plenty of workers do not make above the minimum wage and their employers get away with paying them, with not bringing up the difference. The Justice Department has basically said that they can't enforce this issue. So that basically these large, well-funded publicly traded companies are getting away with paying a subminimum wage. I can tell you though that its history was started after Reconstruction and it was about not having to pay recently freed slaves for their labor. This whole idea of tipping to begin with, just so you know. And that sub-minimum wage just persisted. <laughs> Once we got minimum wages, they were like, well, we can have this minimum wage, but let's do a lower one for the people that are tipped. I mean, it was just another way of ensuring, right, that they could pay less for labor. It's just crazy to me. And I think about like I said, it's largely minorities that are impacted by this. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in California, so largely that's going to be majority is going to be Latinos that are going to be impacted by that. It's crazy. We're very fortunate. And California is one of few states that has disallowed paying the subminimum wage to tip workers. Mm. But states like New York still have it in place. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Okay. So, yeah, mostly you're allowed to pay the subminimum wage. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. California is a great exception. To most things, to many yes, things, to, say, things. <laughs> to many things, whether and social justice being two of them. <laughs> but yes. with that being said, so we're using these investments to advance social justice, which I absolutely love. We'll have some links to that because I think that having, you know, we want to have links to the race and finance series that you have. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes because I think that's awesome. Happy it's getting out there. Thanks for spreading the word. Absolutely. It's been one of those things that I sit back and watch and just thinking about the whole social justice thing with regards to the prisons and labor, because I had someone else on and they were talking really big about ESG and we had a great talk about ESG and all that. So she was breaking it down this way. And I'll say this and I'll let you speak to some of that. But she was saying, okay, so say, Emlyn, say you have a company that hotel chain. And this hotel chain, American hotel chain is using, you know, they're not doing using child labor. However, the company where they get all the cement from that they make all of their buildings out of, it has child labor. The supply chain. The supply chain. So it's maybe not here, but they're involved in that child labor. And Mm -hmm. how do we know that? And so she said, that's where the, you know, ESG investing comes in. We're going to look at that kind of stuff. And what you're saying is the level of, research that your firm is doing is even more deeper than that, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we also look at supply chains, but it's not just looking at how deeply do you go and covering a particular issue. Because So if you're looking at like human trafficking, of course you want to look at that hotel and then you want to look at their suppliers as well to make sure that you aren't inadvertently supporting it if Mm -hmm. they have suppliers, right, that engage or facilitate human trafficking. Mm -hmm. But what we're looking at is what are social justice movements telling us we need to be focusing on? Human trafficking is a very important issue. And there's lots of, it's something that we look at in our portfolio as well. But where we really highlight and organize other advisors to divest are specifically in the areas of racial, gender, economic, climate justice. And we have social partners that have told us 
you know, it's not just about women on corporate boards when it comes to gender justice. It's actually about sexual harassment. You know, it's not just about private prisons. It's about the private prison financiers and suppliers, right? Also the money bail system. So we're able to go kind of like, well, what are the other things we should be looking at mm-hmm. so that we can have a portfolio that isn't inadvertently supporting corporations engaging in systemically inequitable practices? This is so good. Like I could just talk to you about this and hear about this more and more. Well, I think that's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, because I think that it's something that, as you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. So the audience is largely minorities that probably didn't know this stuff. And some of the stuff I didn't even know. And I'm an advisor. So, you know, when you're sitting here thinking about who you're working with, you know, we'll wrap it up here in a sec. But I wanted to ask this. So when someone's looking for an advisor, What are three questions that you would say that you would want to ask an advisor as a consumer? So if I was interested in doing values aligned investing, the first question I would ask is what impact issues are you going to address with my investment? And if you have a set of social justice values, then you know it can't exclusively be the environment, right? It has to be racial, gender, economic, and climate justice. So if you aren't hearing those themes come up when you ask the advisor that question, that's good feedback you need to give them. I would not only say don't necessarily work with them, but I would also say (laughs) educate them on why you're really looking for a more integrated approach that's in line with social justice movements. The second question I would ask is, okay, great. Let's say you are looking at the issues I care about where social justice is concerned, how are you measuring it? So if they say they're working on gender justice and they're measuring just like the composition of women on corporate boards, that's not necessarily going to ultimately get you where you want to go if you know that the most impacted folks tell us that dealing with sexual harassment, as we've been talking about, is primary. So you need to make sure that not only they're dealing with the issues you care about, but that they're measuring them according to what impacted communities tell you. And then the last question is, where did you get your information? Like, who told you? Who are you talking to? And if the only people they're talking to are their financial analysts or investment folks, then they can't possibly be deeply connected to the communities you intend to impact and really encourage them to do that, to deeply connect with those communities, their social justice organizations, and come connect with us. We will make sure that they are in the know. We have a really robust and very joyful passionate community that we'd love to invite financial advisors into when they're making their ESG journey and really want to be able to answer those types of questions as well. Awesome. We're going to make sure we put links to you in the show notes for the show. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And so wanted to ask you these questions in closing here. What inspires you and motivates you to continue to learn and grow? What I do for work, kind of like being that bridge between social justice and finance is hard, but I know that it's not harder than what my ancestors experienced. I know that they had to sacrifice so many things in order to get to a point where I can even be on a podcast. You know, I grew up in a very different environment than the one that I live in now. And so I guess what really inspires me is just knowing all of the many generations before now that paved the way for me to be able to really be that bridge. It's an honor. It's a privilege. And it feels like it's my life's work. 
That's so awesome. I love that. How has your family supported you on this journey? My family is, they still live pretty close to the town, the small town where I grew up. And there's a lot of love there. And financial services, if you aren't delivering returns, you know, like it gets pretty cut and dry. And, you know, my family is the beautiful thing about families everywhere, which is that they love me regardless. And in the end, social justice is actually about love. It's about love for ourselves, love for the planet that we're part of, love for other people. I mean, that's actually what powers everything ultimately is our love. So they keep me in full supply of love. Nice. If you could offer one piece of advice for our listeners, what would that be? Which section of your listeners, like what subset of your listeners are you thinking about? I think about the consumers. Oh, the consumers. You know, check out our race and finance series. It's actually a lot more accessible to people who are not in financial services than folks might think. It's a really great educational tool for understanding your money and how it pertains to race and making Black Lives Matter. So that's one thing I would definitely want to get across. Like, please check it out. Spread the word. You know, it's an important perspective that we're sharing. Awesome. So if people want to get more of Rachel, what social medias are you or your company active on? Where can they find more of you? Twitter, LinkedIn. Occasionally I post on Facebook, but mostly Twitter and LinkedIn. What's your Twitter handle? Let's see. So we just changed them all. <laughs> so the best way to find us on Twitter is, I believe it's at Adesina. At Adesina. Okay. I think it's like at Adesina and then an underscore. And how do you spell Adesina? How do you spell A-D-A-S-I-N-A. All right. So we can find you at Adesina on Twitter. Rachel, thank you so much for coming onto the show today and sharing a little bit about, you know, race and finance and giving so much to the people today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for creating this platform so that we can share more about what we're up to and for inviting me on. So it's truly a pleasure. Absolutely. So we'll have to do it again. I'm just, I'm putting that out there now. We'll have to get you back. Okay, done. As everyone knows, this is the Minority Money Podcast. We are changing the complexion of wealth. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA Or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time.